Welcome to Primetime Conversations. Here's your host, James Tunstall. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me and today, very special guest, uh, WWE legend, uh, one-time Intercontinental Champion and three-time WWF Tag Team Champion. Many people know him as the Mountie. Today, we know him as Jacques Rougeau. Jacques, how are you doing today, sir? How are you doing, James? And thank you for having me on your podcast. Oh, pleasure's all mine. Uh, as a kid growing up watching WWF in the 90s, uh, you was one of my favourite heels growing up and... Uh, your feud against the big boss man and with Brett, it was like two of my favorite feuds growing up. So the fact that I've got the opportunity to speak to you now, it's a great pleasure. Well, thank you very much. And you know what? It's uh, I go back to my careers, you know, and my highlights of my career. And then Lord knows that the, the jailhouse match with big boss man was one of my highlights. That's for sure. Because uh, there was so much attention on that, that match. And there was uh, a rivalry that was put together for a long time. Like a, uh, Big Boss Man was beating his guys every night, and and I was beating my guys every night. And there was a there was an ultimate confrontation that everybody was seen to come because one law enforcement officer from Canada and the other one from Georgia. And uh, but it was a great, great, great feud. But but the best thing of all that, you know what it was? Uh, um, it's uh, that Ray Trailer, Big Boss Man, was a uh, was a wonderful man out of the ring, and he was a yeah. wonderful man to work in in the ring. Also, he was so careful about with his opponent. He so it was great. It was great. Yeah. Cool. So before we uh, talk about your career, Jack, um, you got a big announcement. Like I thought you was retired, but you seemed, you know, wrestlers they never retire, and you got this big academy where you've just started, and it looks great. And I mean, tell everyone about it. Well, you know, it's really uh, the biggest project I've ever done outside the ring. And uh, and Lord knows it's a, the the Canadian wrestlers are very very happy because it's not only a contest that I'm doing it's called wrestling-academy.ca for those who want to go on the website it's wrestling-academy.ca go follow this because it's going to be amazing because you'll be the judges out there that's what's great people will be texting in for for the votes to see who stays and who goes and there'll be a panel of judges by the ring and where they're going to vote for 40% but 60% is going to be the people from Australia from England from all over the the world that's going to follow this and, and what's fun is i took like 40 wrestlers and it's the first time in Canada that the 10 provinces work together with wrestling wow. because, because every province, they have their own territories and they're bosses of their own territories. But I've managed to get the best wrestlers out of every province. So it's now not a provincial contest, but it's a national contest. And what's fun about all that? Well, the four winners, because there's going to be 40 contestants when they start. And every week, we're going to eliminate four wrestlers, girls or male. And it's going to be going down all to the nitty gritty. And when we get to the last four wrestlers, QT Marshall from the Nightmare Factory in the United States is going to come to be the guest judge on the last uh, night. And so the four winners, they get to win $5,000 each, which is a lot because those guys in the Indies, they usually make $100 a night. So they're going to make $5,000 yes. and plus they get a chance to go to QT Marshall's Nightmare Factory, which is the biggest, biggest wrestling school now, the most popular in North America. So he's going to take my four winners, and they're going to go spend three months in training with in Atlanta, Georgia, 
where where the where the nightmare factory is and where all the professional wrestlers they come in and they come out they train there and stuff so it's going to be a great great opportunity you have no idea to see how excited all the talent is in canada for this contest as a matter of fact i think you mentioned to me that you may have this interview or this message from qt marshall i don't know if you have it or not but uh, oh, sure do. Sure do, Mr. Rougeau. We sent it in, and yeah, we'll just play it for everyone everybody, now. Everybody, this is QT Marshall from All Elite Wrestling and one of the owners of one of the best training facilities in the world, the Nightmare Factory. And I wanted to give a quick Jacques Rougeau on there, and Jacques has a great project in the works. I'm excited about it. In fact, the Nightmare Factory has even uh, told Mr. Rougeau that the winners of this project will receive a special three-month, 12-week scholarship to the Nightmare Factory, which has seen athletes from all over the world come train with us. And, and honestly, some have signed contracts with major wrestling organizations in the world, such as AEW and stuff like that. So um, I'm excited for this project. I think it's a great for, for aspiring professional wrestlers all throughout Canada. Um, I support it, and I hope that if all works out well, I'll be able to come up to Montreal and partake in being one of the judges of this of this special project. So good luck to everyone. Just wanted to say hello. Just wanted to let everybody know that it is me um, and we are offering this scholarship to the winners. So uh, you can read into it, whatever you want, but you've heard it straight from the horse's mouth. It is true. And again, good luck to everyone and hopefully- Wow, that's you. pretty awesome. <laughs> is that something or what, James? You know, I'm so amazed because this guy, QT Marshall, I don't even know. I've never met him. And, you know, when I had my falling out with the WWF in 1997, I yeah. uh, I never watched wrestling after that again. I never turned on for 30 years. I never watched the TV, so I don't know the talent. So QT Marshall, for me, I don't know him. I just... I just heard of him a lot from my students and my own wrestling school and stuff. So I, I reached out to him and he turned around. What a generous man. He just said, hey, that Jacques, that's a great project. I'm getting behind it. I want to get those Canadian wrestlers a chance, give them a chance to shine around the world. So so they're going to the Nightmare Factory. And I'm, I'm, I'm in debt to that man. You know, I don't know him, but I, you know, if I, if I was a girl, I'd kiss him. But anyway, all this to say that. He's a great, great man, and this is a great, great project for the, the young wrestlers who are really talented. Like I said, if you go on wrestling-academy.ca and you go see all the contestants that you're going to go and press on the picture, and you're going to see a 30-second video of what they can do of all over the country. And they're all great talent that, you know, in the business, there's two things that could play with you or against you is if, if, if to make it in the big leagues. you got to be at the right place at the right time or you got to know the right people. And, yes. and and that's when I'm giving them a chance for three months with the Q, QT Marshall. So it's the two uh, things that they need to make it. If ever they make it, it's make it or break it. If they spend three months there and they don't make it, then they'll know at least they had a chance to be seen by the best of the of the, the wrestling world. So for me, I'm, you know, they're excited, but I'm much more excited because I get a chance to, 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 to pass the torch and to, yes. to help the Canadian wrestlers. So it's a great, great adventure. Oh, yeah. And speaking of the best and someone you know really well, I'm sure we'll be talking about him quite a lot. Uh, another special clip by the legendary uh, Brett the Hitman Hart. So let's have a look at what he's got hey, to this say. This is Brett the Hitman Hart, and I want to wish all the best to Jock Rougeau and his Wrestling Academy 2022. I know they got a big event coming up, a big contest, and a great opportunity for wrestlers across Canada, men and women to train and maybe win $5,000 and ultimately get a chance to train with QT Marshall and the Nightmare Factory and maybe get a chance to maybe wrestle for AEW. 
But all I know is this is a great opportunity for every young wrestler. And I want to just thank Jock Russo for putting the idea together. I hope it works out really well and may the best wrestlers win. Well, uh, Jack, Brett, that's my favorite wrestler of all time. Everyone knows that. And to see him put over your skull, that's, wow, amazing. And you know what, James? I'm gonna I'm the first one to tell you, though. Brett, the hitman heart, is the biggest icon that ever came out of Canada. You know, yes, he really great. is. He's the best. I'm second. But he was first. And, you know, to have him, to have a chance to see him wish good luck to all. What an inspiration to all my wrestlers, you know, who looked at Brett as the Hart Foundation and, and, and Brett alone and, and all the great achievements that he made. And for him to thank me for putting this together, you know, what a great guy, Brett. Just what a great guy and what a great inspiration. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh... Great guy. Uh, I mean, like I said, I'm sure we're going to speak about him quite a lot. Uh, but yeah, this project you've got on, uh, Mr. Rougeau, it's unreal. And I've always been a big fan of Canadian wrestlers. I don't know what it is, but the Canadians seem to love the UK, people from the UK. And the UK wrestling fans love the Canadian wrestlers. You uh, was on one of my friend's podcasts recently, Joe Fo in the Ring and Jeremy Prophet. And oh, they're, yeah. some my, they're some of my good friends. And we always speak about this connection between the UK and Canadian wrestling fans or wrestlers. And uh, it's great to see this project you're doing. And hopefully that will springboard quite a few careers in the future. You know, that's what I'm hoping for. And the thing is, is we, you know, about two weeks ago, and I'll tell you the story real short so that people know what happened. This I started this project eight months ago with my girlfriend. She works all the technical and I'm on the I'm, I'm on the <laughs> I don't know how to say it. But, <laughs> and and uh, and when we started this project, QT Marshall had promised me that he would take my talent, the four winners, for one day in Atlanta and give them a chance to do an interview, to go into the ring. But when you have one day, you have a, you don't have a second chance to make a first impression. So then last no. week, so last week he calls me back and he's getting all these phone calls at the Nightmare Factory because the last four months I've been doing podcasts in Australia, I've been doing them in England, everywhere in the world. So everybody's calling the Nightmare Factory. The people who love me can't believe it. And the people that hate me, they want to see if it's true. So they're getting all kinds of calls at the Nightmare Factory. So he calls me up last week and he says, John, what are you doing? He says, I'm getting all these calls at the Nightmare Factory. You know, people want to come and join and stuff like that. It's like, and he says, listen, you're doing a great job. So he says, listen, I'm going to do a deal with you, Jacques. I'm going to give a whole week to the four winners. And I went like, oh, my God, you know, because now if you don't, if you, you, you don't have to have a second chance to make a first impression, because if you if you screw up on Monday, you could try Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So it's a great chance. So I was so happy. And then two days ago, QT Marshall sends me this video that we just saw before. And me and my girlfriend are looking at the video just to see what he's saying, you know, and then he says three months. I looked at my girlfriend and said, oh. holy shit, three months. And, and I'm saying, I, I, was, I was jumping. I was saying, we got to send this message to all the talent across Canada from Vancouver to Halifax. They're going to go nuts, blivering nuts. And that's what happened the last two days. I've been on the phone with all my talent, and they're all saying, Jacques, this is the greatest opportunity for any Canadian wrestlers. To, 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 because you know what? It's hard to get the papers the, the, the immigration papers to go yes. work in the United States. So what I'm doing now, it was the same thing with Vince at the time. When Raymond and I went to wrestle, the only way that Vince was able to go get foreigners, it was that he was, be, he was able to convince that the wrestlers that they're bringing in from the outside of the country are better than the ones that are there. So, right. so it's like, 
otherwise we would never would have got the papers. So what he he did that he convinced. So now I'm not going to give papers, working papers to anybody. They're just going to go down as tourists. But if they stay there three months and they love them, and one big federation loves them, then they're going to go get the papers for them. But that's not part of my deal. But it's something that could happen. It's just something that could happen. And yeah, the other yeah. thing, James, the other thing, sorry for cutting you off, but the other thing, James, I want to let you know, too, that's so important to me. When you're there three months, you know, QT Marshall is going to train them for three months. And a lot of the professional wrestlers from, from, from the big leagues go work out there and train there. You know, uh, not only that he's going to see them, but he's going to three months, he's going to get maybe to like them. You know, and there's going to be a bond that, and and yes. I'm becoming, and, and now as I'm seeing right now, I'm slowly becoming his pet project. So like he he was definitely wants to take some of my talent and make him go to the big leagues. So so yes. so so now it's not a question of just showing off and this and that. It's a question of becoming friends with my talent, getting to know them, laughing with them, spending the days with them. And when you get a liking into somebody, you want to help them. So this is so that's for me. It's so exciting what's happening. Yeah, it's great, and uh, I mean, I'll be sure to put the links of it in the description for this video, uh, so everyone can just click on the link and take you straight to your website. Oh, so well, I'll be well, sure great. to do Thank so. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. And it's it's great to hear that for Canadian wrestling, because uh, a big advocate for Canadian wrestling is uh, Jeremy Prophet, and uh, he's doing great work trying to raise awareness because. Growing up in the territories, obviously your family, the famous Rougeaus in Montreal, you had the Hearts in Calgary, all the, these big wrestling families, and obviously the Tunnies, for example, um, all these big wrestling families in these territories. And unfortunately, the Canadian scene has dwindled like quite small. And it's great to hear yourself and Profit and all these people trying to raise the profile of Canadian wrestling. And obviously, with COVID and everything, it's been hard to do so. But it's great to hear stories like this and bring up Canadian wrestling again. You know, there's a great story with Jeremy Prophet because, you know, he's recognized to be one of the two best wrestlers in Canada. You know, so he's he's on cloud nine right now. He's just flying because he has been in the business for 19 years. Yeah. And I'm the one I'm the one who started him off. He came to my wrestling school and that's where he started. And then we lost each other over the years. Good, and yeah. then now we just got back together. But Jeremy, he was telling me, he said, you know, Jacques, he says, for 19 years, I've been trying to break into the big leagues and this. I just don't know anybody. I don't have any contacts. He says, this, I think, is the ultimate chance for me to make it in the big leagues. And, you know, it's one of my students. You know, Kevin Owen was one of my students. That's and right, yeah. I taught him at the age of 14 years old. Kevin Owen came to see me and I showed him how to, how to walk in the ring. And, you know, and he stayed until 19 years old and then he took off with his own wings. But, you know, so so for me, it'd be a what imagine if I had Jeremy Prophet, a second of my students that makes it big. But not only that, imagine if I get to two, three of the other talent in Canada, as much as Vancouver or Edmonton, Calgary or whoever, uh, Chris Dillon and Halifax and Jordy Taylor and all those big guys that I've never had a chance that I'm in touch with now. If Imagine if I get three or four wrestlers to have a career in big leagues like that. So then I would leave something behind. I would, it would be great for me. And uh, so I'm very, very excited. And remember one thing, James, that this, that Rome wasn't built in one day and by one person alone. And right now I'm building Rome and I need help. And I'm so glad that you're giving me this opportunity to tell the fans, Hey, 
Go on wrestling-academy.ca and subscribe. You know, I used to see videos on TV and I'd see them go subscribe and ring the bell. And, and I was saying like, leave me alone. Like, just don't, you know, I, I was bugging me then when I'd hear that. Yeah. And, now I'm the one, and now I'm the one saying that. Subscribe because you'll be able to vote. You know, for uh, even if it's in Canada, you'll be able to follow this journey, which is going to be amazing. Awesome. Great. So, so Mr. Rougeau, uh, with that said, so we'll uh, jump to your career. So you mentioned uh, briefly about joining WWE and obviously you made it to the locker room and originally used were baby faces. Uh, I have to ask <laughs> for first impressions of one man. And to me, he's one of the biggest legends of all time. And I used to term big, literal Andre the Giant. Yeah, wow. um, you must have a fun story of Andre. <laughs> you know, I, I lived with Andre, you know, and I knew Andre when I was like four years old because Andre used to come wrestle yes. in Montreal and he That's used right. to wrestle with my dad's company and my uncle Johnny's company. So, 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 so the Rougeau brothers are not Raymond and myself. The first Rougeau brothers are Jock and Johnny Rougeau, which were my father and my uncle. And before that, their uncle, Eddie Yoshi, was wrestling. We right. have four generations. So, anyway, long story short. I remember when I was around the pool when I was young, and Andre the Giant would show up in my little my little town, little house by the pool. And man, when I was four years old, he was big. <laughs> you know, like yeah. wow, he was like a big monster. And 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 he grew up. We grew up together. He wrestled in Montreal a lot. And then finally, when I got to WWF with Raymond in '86, he was there. And and, and and you know, it was like seeing my 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 lost friend for a long time. And so what we did, me and Andre the Giant and Arnold Skolan, which was an agent for the WWF, yes. we were all we were all cribbage players. I don't know if you know the game of cribbage. I'm out of it, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's a great, great game. And and then my mom had taught me when I was young, and I, and not everybody knows how to play that game. So when Andre, yeah. I, I got there in the WWF, I saw him play one time with Arnold Skolan. I went by him and I said, Hey, you got some money to lose? You know, and he, and he looked at and he looked at me, and we became competitive uh, crib players. So, so the great part of that is I killed a lot of time with him. I was happy. But when we get on international flights or flights, like long flights, five, six-hour flights, Andre was always sitting in the front in first class. And they could never sell the seat beside him because his elbows, the guy would have had it in his face. Yeah. So, so the seat was always empty. So as soon as we take off, then all the jabronis like us, you know, that we'd be sitting in the back in the economy. Then as soon as we got up and they turned the seatbelt sign off, the flight attendant would come back and she'd say, uh, Jacques Rougeon, Jacques Rougeon. And then I'd say, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then they'd go sit me up front beside Andre and we'd play cribbage. So then I'd have the service of first class, you know, and it was, so that was amazing. So Andre was always a close, close friend of mine and, and, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's too bad that his career ended the way it did because he was very sour in life. He was because of uh, and, uh, his dad had passed away too not long yes, ago. Yes, that's right. And, and he was drinking his life away. And I remember in the last few years that we were traveling, it was uh, sometimes it was embarrassing, you know, because I was sitting beside him playing crib, and he was so miserable with his life, and because uh, because people would always point at him, like you know, for his whole career. Oh, look at that guy. Look at that monster. Look at this. After a while, he got sour about that. He didn't like that anymore. And sometimes he forgot that there were still good people out there. So sometimes someone would come up, example, and say, excuse me, Mr. Andre, can I have Get out of here. And I'd go like, holy shit. You know, like, don't talk like that, Andre. Don't talk like that. You know, and then. Uh, 
but he was miserable. And he'd get up in the morning and he'd drink. And he was on the flights, he'd drink. He could drink like a, a easily 100 beers a day. You know, easily. Yeah. Three bottles of wine, you know, in one day before he got in the ring. And uh, so he was miserable. And, and uh, but, but, uh, but anyway, I only keep great souvenirs. And he was always nice to me. He always took care of me, like a, almost like his kid. You know, so, so, uh, so great stories about Andre. I got thousands of them, I can tell you. But great man, a great man. I'm I'm pretty sure it was uh I think it was Brett in his book and he was told that at such and such a time Andre's gonna leave his curtains open. So they say climb onto the balcony and have a look. So Brett's climbing on the balcony and Andre had a lady friend with him that night. And Brett Brett described the scene. He said it was just it was like a lion mauling a rabbit. <laughs> Holy <laughs> mackerel, you're just teaching me something. I didn't know that side of Andre. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Brett's book. <laughs> but but uh, but anyway, one thing I can tell you about Andre, one night I'll never forget, is we're after the show in Val d'Or, up in north in, in Quebec, and uh, we're all sitting at the bar just having a beer, you know, before we go to bed, and uh, we were invited by the owner of the bar just after the show to go take a beer or two. And, uh, and there was this guy that came in the bar and, uh, and and I I had just I had just left with Raymond. We had just left to the dressing room uh, to our rooms to sleep. Yeah. And 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 the one guy came up to Andre. They told the story where he uh, he the guy taps him on the shoulder like, but pretty snug, you know, pretty stiff. Like, hey Andre, you know how you doing, you know? And Andre just turned around and he looked at him with his face. And the guy and 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 I don't know what he said, what happened, but the guy started running. And like he, I think he, he hit him and he's the guy started running because Andre got up like he wanted to catch him. And the guys, there was four guys and they all, but four skinny guys and they all started running out and they jumped in their car and they had a Volkswagen. I don't know if you know what a Volkswagen is. Yeah. Like a, and, and so, so he went outside and he took the Volkswagen and he turned it upside down. Wow. I swear to God, I swear to God, he turned the Volkswagen upside down with the four guys in it. And, you know, and it's like when the next morning when the owner of the bar told us that, you know, I, it's almost something you have to see to believe it, you know, because yeah. the car, car is heavy, you know, and four guys in it. But Andre was strong. Andre was a strong, strong man. So that's a hell of a story. I, I remember all the time when I think of Andre. It's like, who would think of going messing with Andre the Giant, you know, like sitting at a bar? <laughs> you know, the guy must have been really drunk or something. But again, <laughs> And uh, so when you got brought in, you were brought in as uh, baby faces and uh, you started feuding with the Heart Foundation pretty much straight away. And there was a phantom title change at one point where you thought he's won the title, but I think it was like a DQ finish. For, and was there any talk of views actually becoming tag team champions because you were pretty over? You know what? Uh, the, you know, they always talk about Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart, the screw job in Montreal. But the real screw job in Montreal is when, when we wrestled the Heart Foundation and we took the titles, like we really took the titles, and then there was 18,000 people that were just like they won a Stanley Cup in hockey. They were just going mad. The Rougeos are world champions in the WWF. And, and I had 5,000 people come out to my car. They were banging on my car. And, and I remember my wife at the time, she was saying, oh, my God, oh my God. I said, relax. I said, they love us. Just relax. And you know, and they were banging and screaming and stuff. And 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 when what happened is when like two days later after the show, they would they put an ad in the newspaper, a small little ad, like because it was the wrong guy in the ring, 
the Hart Foundation remains tag team champion. But not everybody reads that paper. No. And there's nobody, you know, not everybody sees that news. So it's like when they got the only thing the French Canadians wanted to do is sit on TV on Saturday morning and to see the Frère Rougeau, the Rougeau brothers come out champions on TV. And the next thing you see is the hearts are coming out and they like nothing ever happened. They never even mentioned losing the titles. And the people were like screwed in Montreal. They, were, they didn't understand. So that was the real screw job in Montreal. It was for the fans, the screw job. You know, but uh, that was bad because uh, we we should have had we should have had him at least a week or two, you know, to acknowledge. Yeah. You know, but but Vince worked in different ways that I don't understand. So, did he prefer working as baby faces or heels? Absolutely heels. Yeah. Oh, of course, because when we were baby faces, we were going into the ring. We had to work very very hard to get over because we were French Canadians in America. You know, and, and good guys, you know, they don't, the Americans don't want to have good guys at the country next door, you know, in that little country up north. They want to have, so so we worked so hard to get the attention and the crowd going. But uh, it was even frustrating sometimes because we'd work so hard, we'd win the match, we'd win the people over at the end. But during the match and before we'd go out, there was a lot of haters, a lot of hardcore was saying, Go back to Canada and go back to this and screw you, Rougeos, and this. And we were just babyface following the rules, trying to be nice guys, but it was hard. And then when they turned us heels two years later, and then we had the green light to laugh at the Americans. Let me tell you, something was an easy job to do <laughs> because I had a lot, of, a lot of vengeance in my mind of the way they treated us for two years. We worked so hard for them and they didn't accept that much. So I said, okay, guys, now it's our turn. And we became all American boys. We don't like heavy metal. We don't like rock, don't and, like roll. rock and roll. We like to listen to his Barry. Barry <laughs> we had those little flags and Jimmy Hart was with us. And we told everybody, we just moved to Memphis. We are now <laughs> Americans, you know, like just like you. And it wasn't true at all. We were flying out of Montreal. But, but, it, but, it, but it, was just, it was just amazing because we'd get on the promos and let's say it was a, it was Independence Day. And, you know, so we do a promo like, hey, me and Gene, you know, we want to wish everybody thank, a good Thanksgiving. You know, but it was the wrong, it was the wrong uh, birthday of the uh, a national birthday anyway. And they hated us. Boy, did they hated us. And we were having so much fun. And even in our tune song, the, the song that I just sang you a little bit, we had a paragraph that was in French. And in that, that paragraph, and in that paragraph, we were laughing the shit out of them, like really, really <laughs> blasting them in French, like we hate you guys and this and that. And yeah, and, and then when we come back in English, it was, oh, we're all preppy little boys, you know, like it was. And so we had so much fun with that. So yes, the question is, is I adore working as a heel. And even when I was a Mountie, I had so much fun as a heel. So, so yeah, it's the best role for a wrestler. And you know, if you think about that now, and you look back, and anybody who watches movies a lot, which I do, to create a great Batman, you need a bigger Joker. You know, yes. so you always need a good villain to make a babyface look good. Because anybody could be a babyface. The proof is one night, Sid Vicious, you know, Sid Justice, Sid Vicious, the big, big guy there, he was a, he was a heel. He was yeah. a bad guy. And, 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 and I don't know what happened, but uh, uh, Randy Macho Man Savage quit that night. He just right. walked out. And when he walked out, he was the big baby face of the evening. 
So so they so Vince he turned around on a on a dime and he got me in a dressing room and and he got me and Sid Vicious there and 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 he was sitting there and he said to Sid he says listen uh, and Sid probably wondered what I was doing there in that room but anyway so he's saying that uh, he says to Sid he says listen he says uh, Randy left tonight so he says we're gonna need a big baby face and then when he said that the city went oh, 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 oh. like he says. I'm not a baby face. He says, I got more heat than anybody, you know, in the territory. And then Vince looked at him. He says, well, Sid, not really. He says, uh, this guy here, the Mountie, he says, he's got a lot of heat. And he says, we're going to turn you baby face. And he looked at him and said, you can't do that. He said, nobody's going to buy it. I, I got too much heat. So so I went out. So, so that night I went out in the ring and I took the microphone. And I got on the microphone and I looked at the 20,000 people. I said, you know what? I'm looking at all you bunch of hillbillies right now, and I don't think, I don't see a man in this place here. There ain't no man here. And as a matter of fact, I just came out from that locker room, and I don't think there's a man in that locker room that can meet the money. And, you know, by that time, boom, Sid Vicious comes out with the music, and he was the biggest baby face of his life. He had no idea what just hit him, but then he realized that I had more heat than he did, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so they turned him baby face just like that. And, you know, yeah. so that was, the, that was, a, that was a, a trophy for me because they used me, the Joker, to make Batman. You yeah. know, and so that was amazing for me. What a great feeling. Just a, a trust of Vince, a, uh, I don't know how to explain that, but he saw it, you know, and he 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 went through it, and it happened. So 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 I have great moments like that as a heel. So if you ask me, you know, what I like the most, uh, it's probably being a heel, yeah. Right. And uh, one thing I want to speak to you about: last year was the Dark Side of the Ring series, and they done the episode on Dynamite, and obviously you gave your full story. It was a great episode. I actually interviewed Dynamite's daughter Bronwyn, and she spoke about, it, and she thought the episode came across really well as well. Uh, how was your, uh, how was it recording that Dark Side of the Ring and going back and remembering this time with Dynamite? I got to tell you something. There's so many things I have to say about that. That was the worst time of my life in my career. Um, yeah. Dynamite was a bully, and he yeah. was bullying a lot of wrestlers in the dressing room. And uh, and, uh, and and you know, I uh, when when he um, a lot of people were scared of him. And so when that happened, you know, the uh, I'm not going to get into the details of everything, but he beat me up in the dressing room after a match that we had in the Madison Square Gardens, the Bulldogs against the Rougeos, where we had a a, a, a draw. There was no That's winners. Right, yeah. Thomas and they, and they, yeah, I said, yeah, you're good. And then and then like when when Vince, we were sitting in the dressing room and they talked about that match. It was like they said, OK, guys, I'd really like to have a good match tonight, you know, and uh, we were ready, me and Raymond, to get beat, you know, of course, because we were just coming yeah. in. And the Bulldogs were so amazing. Even to yeah. us, we were marks of the Bulldogs. They were just <laughs> extraordinary. So, so you know, we're sitting there waiting to see how we're going to get beat. And then Vince says, well, I'd like to have a 20 minute draw. I looked at Raymond like I went. Yes. You know, like it's many, and so I imagine when it's like in a couple, when someone's really happy, the other one's unhappy. So, yeah. so, it's, so it's like, so then I saw the Bulldogs just like, the fucking hill. You know, like, and it was like, they were pissed. And I think the heat started there. So, so yeah. then he, he was nagging and ribbing the guys. And then he got on my case. 
And I told uh, Mr. Perfect when he had just came in, I said, I'm not going to let this shit happen. I'm going to go talk to Vince. So Mr. Perfect went to see the Bulldog. He said, Jacques going to stooge on you, you know. <laughs> so, so, so that got beat up bad when I came back after those three days off. He left me in a pile of blood and he swore oh, me wow. up. So it was like he, uh, but I didn't deserve it. No. I didn't deserve the beating. Uh, not at all for nothing. So so it was it was like free. It was a free beating I got, and and, and it messed me up bad mentally. And, and then after that, it took me the whole courage in the world a week later to do what I did to to save face and to, to make a comeback. So so and I had a lot of heat with a lot of guys because everybody that was afraid of them before they knew the bulldogs were going to come back and kill me after that. You know, once I did my comeback. So then nobody wanted to talk to us or nothing. And finally, it just faded away. And I remember a year later, uh, a year and a half later, when I, when I came back as the Mountie, I'm sitting in the dressing room in Philadelphia. And I see on the card when I walk in, Davy Boy Smith, the British Bulldog. And they, they had quit the business after I beat him up. They, they, the two weeks after they quit the business. That's and right, I, thought yeah. was, I thought it was the end of the Bulldogs. I'd never see him again. And thank the Lord, you know, because I didn't want trouble. I, the truth is, James, is I'm not a fighter, I'm an entertainer. Nah. So so I, I was glad when they left and that was over. And then when I'm sitting in Philadelphia a year and a half later as a Mountie, and I see in the wall that I am wrestling Davy Boy Smith. Oh, I'm going like, oh shit. I got I got I got shivels in my body. And I said, Well, I guess the comeback's gonna be tonight. I guess he's gonna kick my ass or he's gonna do something really bad, you know. Maybe pick me up at the end of his arms and drop me over the top so I could land on the cement, or he's gonna do something to to save face. But when he arrived at the building that night, he came in and the first thing he did in front of all the boys, he came in and he told me, he says, uh, Jacques, he says, can I talk to you in the, in the shower? And I'm going, and inside of myself, I'm going, uh, but then I didn't show it. So I'm going like, sure. You know, I'm just playing the game, you know? And then, so, so I, I walk behind him, but I'm keeping my distances because, you know, I don't want him to sucker something to me, like sucker kick or sucker punch. Yeah. So I stay away. And when he turns around, he looks at me in my face. He says, I just want to say one thing. What happened to Dynamite, he deserved it. And he says, I don't want no trouble. I says, and my blood, I, I, was, I was so relieved. I can't explain how yeah. I was relieved. And I looked at him and, I, and he put his hand out to me and I almost felt like crying because yeah. I was saying, so I shook his hand and then we became friends and then we had matches. So, so that was the end of the story. So 30 years later, they call me at home. I'm sitting at home, and there's this mini series that they're calling Dark Side of the Ring. And they say they're doing something on Dynamite Kid, and we'd like they like to have an impression of me. And I'm saying, uh, I, I don't want to talk about that anymore. I really don't. Like, uh, that's that's history for me. You know, it was a rough time. About no, no. They said, Jacques, we want just to have your side of the story. So that's what I did. So if you go see ep the third season of Dark Side of the Ring and the episode with Tom Billing Billinger or Billinger, yeah, Billington, Billington. So, yeah. so you'll see what happened, and and they and and they they listened to my story. They flew me into Toronto. They recorded it, and I was so nervous. While before they showed it on the air, I was saying, "What if they?" Because they, you know, on TV, they could always make someone, or they could break yeah. them. They could they could put the, edit, with, yeah. put the wrong place at the wrong time and edit it, so you end up where you look like an asshole. Oops, sorry, but you know, so so it's like so it's like I was so nervous, and when it came out. And I saw that and they showed exactly what happened, how he sucker punched me and he beat me up. And then I made my comeback. And thanks to my dad, because he was my inspiration and I made it through. And after that, you know, James, it's amazing life. You know, all my life, 
I always thought to myself when it was happening, I said it was the worst thing of my life that ever happened. But now I look back and I say it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Because after that, when I quit wrestling in WWF in 1997 or something, 96, I start giving conferences in, in schools. And, and, and I did for 20 years. I went for free in almost every school in the province of Quebec to show people how to fight bullying without violence, how to beat bullying without violence. And people thought I was a great guy, you know, doing that. But I wasn't doing it for the kids. I wasn't doing it for the people. I was doing it for me. Because every time I'd come out of a school, it was like a therapy for me. Because I knew I was helping the kids. And it helped me understand. And it helped me get stronger. So it was really a therapy for me. So if I, if I wouldn't have got beat up, I never would have helped the kids in all the schools for 20 years. You know, so now I look at it back like, hey, it was a bad thing. But great things came out of it. And when I saw the documentary... I was proud that they, they gave me back my integrity, which I had yeah. lost when it happened. I had lost everything. I, my self-esteem, it was down to nothing. I wanted to quit the business so bad after he beat me up that week there before I did my comeback. I was walking one foot and the other. was I looked like the elephant man, but he had it in the back. I had it in the face. And, you know, I was walking around and going in the dressing room night after night. And then they'd come in, the Bulldogs, and they'd bang their bag beside me. They'd intimidate me. They kept bullying me. I was almost becoming the McFly of Back to the Future. You know, yeah. so it was like, so, so I had to do something. I didn't have a choice. Or the Rougeau name would have went down the drain and like losers. And like, they just, they're just victims like the others, like Honky Tonk Man who fell down to the battle and, and Outback Jack who got his hair shaved in a bar, you know, and, yes. then, and all the stuff that they did that were mean. And so I, and, and, and I did that comeback because of my dad. Because my dad, he was my hero. And, you know, he worked so hard to have a great reputation for the Rougeau family. So I did it just for him. I, I used the love of my dad to make that comeback. And the Sunday night, the one week later, after I did, when I did my comeback, the, the, I was doing my comeback on the Monday morning, a week later. And the Sunday night, I called my dad up. And he felt so bad. And, you know, and then I told him, I said, Dad? And, and I didn't say dad because I couldn't talk that well. I said, Dad? And then he says, Yeah. Jacques? And I said, yes, me. I said, listen, I just want to let you know, tomorrow I'm doing a comeback. And it was for him I was doing it. And you know what my, fancy, my father answered? My father looked at me and he says, well, before you go to the show tomorrow, you stop by the bank and you get yourself a roll of quarters. And he says, when you hit him, you hit him to kill him. You hear me? He says, you hit him to kill him. And I, and I hadn't slept all week already because I took the decision to make a comeback. But when my dad told me that, I had to go get a roll of quarters and to do that. I can tell you, I was throwing up. Everything I put yeah. in my mouth, I was so nervous. I was so upside down. I was depressed. I was, and, and then my life changed when I, when I hit him with that roll of quarters. My life changed. And then and, and after that, for two weeks, I, I still had two weeks to go with them because when I hit him, about two nights later, they went back to England, and it was like two years that they hadn't been home because they were so busy, uh, they were so popular, they were even the days off, Vince would use them to personal appearances and stuff like that. So it had been two years since he went home. And then when he went home, he came back two days later after the pay-per-view, and I had to be with him in the same card for two weeks. They gave their notice. Me and Raymond were coming out of the parking lot when we arrived to the arenas, and we were back-to-back going in like in movies, like back to back, just because we were afraid to have a steel pipe that would hit me on the head or something like that. It was that bad, the, the, the animosity. But when the two weeks was over with, and then finally they left the territory, 
then the, the guys start respecting me. Like, you know, it was like, I got that respect that took some time. And and then, and if you go on my website, I got to tell you, this is so funny because I'm getting all this uh, on my wrestling academy. I'm getting all the old timers that are coming in to, to wish good words, you know, for the, for the contenders, you know, in Canada. And Lanny Poffo does one where he says, uh, oh, the million dollar punch. <laughs> he calls me the million dollar punch on that. And it's amazing because it was just a, one punch that I gave in my whole life. And I, and it's funny because on wrestling-academy.ca, if you go see, I got a video from Jake the Snake yesterday. Oh, wow. You know? That's amazing, Jake the Snake, you know. And, he, and you know, he had some rough years, you know, some really yeah. rough years. And now he's sober. He's completely oh, yeah. sober. He's so now... So now he did me a nice video and he was such my idol because when I was in the dressing room in the eighties and stuff like that, he used to come in with this big snake and I was afraid of snakes. I always was afraid of snakes. So when he come in the dressing room, what he'd do is he'd go in the showers and he'd put the water on a little bit and he'd dump a snake in the shower, which would hang around there under the water, you know, to be fresh. But, but the funniest thing was snake was always a main event. So when I'd finish my match early like that, I'd, I'd come to the sink and I'd wash under the sink because I didn't want to take a shower with the sink. But anyway, but 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 those were the good things, you know. When you look back at that, there's so so you'll see all those videos that I have on my website because you have the Bushwhacker Luke, you got the Ricky Steamboat, the Dragon Steamboat, Arriba, Tiro Santana, you got Double J Jeff Jarrett, the Million Dollar Man, and GSP. I don't know if you follow MMA in, in Europe. Oh yeah, but, big fan. Yeah, you know, he was a big, big hero. So he did me a video too. So all you guys want to have fun. You want to look at the new talent today, but you want to reminisce a little bit of souvenirs with the yay and the whoa and all that stuff. It's it's just amazing, this this thing. Why am I going back to my competition? I must be I must be excited. <laughs> You're going to hook me up with GSP one day. <laughs> oh, my God. You're, take a number. Because <laughs> well, all my friends, that's what they're saying. You got to hook me up with Jake. You got to hook me up with GSP. And then it's like they did me that favor, and I don't even know why. I swear to God, I don't know why. And when GSP did me that, he came to do a podcast. Like you're doing podcasts. I did some for two years during the COVID. And I asked GSP a long shot. I just sent it to his agent, you know. And GSP returned a call. He says, I'd love to do a podcast with you. He says, you were my hero in the WWF. And I couldn't believe it. He says we brought. He was brought up looking at me, and I was one of his heroes at the time. So he did my podcast, but I'd never had. I'd never go ahead and call him and say, "Hey, would you do a podcast for James Pod over in the?" <laughs> I, don't, I, I may have to need him somewhere else down the road, and I want to keep my favors to me, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and that was the great thing about the eighties and the early nineties. There were so many different characters and uh, all these great gimmicks, and like it was like a cartoon that you could tell who was who by looking at that's my thing with today's wrestling a lot of people looks the same but back then there's so many different characters and i suppose one of the biggest characters and this was about the time when you came back as the bounty and he was the world champion uh ultimate warrior uh how was he as champion and what was your dealings like with the warrior not great by the looks of it <laughs> you know i have this thing there my father always told me if you don't have anything good to say about someone don't say anything at all now, i'll tell you uh his name was jim and and, and and he was in his own world really i was too but he was bad in his own world like he was like more important than everybody and he just he just came in the business not knowing how to work at all just had these great big muscles but he knew how to shake the ropes and he knew how to and he had this great character but 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 the guys were complaining he was stiff 
But but that's not the worst. It was like he just overlooked everything. And, and you know that, and we didn't appreciate that the boys because he came from nowhere and he passed in front of everybody and got up to the top. And what he said at the time is he didn't pay his dues. You know, and when I was there in the eighties, the guys that were there, they were talented. You know, everybody from 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 Ricky Steamboat to Coco Beware with his birds. You know, he knew how to wrestle Coco Beware. You know, there yeah. were the guys, Skinner, Steve Kern, and then Tito yeah. Santana. Guys that gave 20, 30 years in the business, and they have this guy that comes in from after one year and he just makes it to the top. It's okay. You know, we will I think everybody would have accepted it if 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 it helps draw money and it's good for the company. But when the guy comes in and has a bad attitude towards some yeah. guy, that's where it doesn't it doesn't fit. You know, it's like I'm better than all of you, and 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 you're second. You know, and it's like it doesn't work like that. Because, and you know, one thing I'll always remember when I think of Ultimate Warrior, I think of something my dad told me when I was young. When I was about, uh, I would say, uh, 20, 20 years old, I started at the age of 17. But when I was 20 years old, my dad told me one thing because I was a little cocky. I was a little arrogant. I was big headed a bit because I became a star, you know, real fast. And, you know, so it went to my head. And then I went to see my dad one time and I told him, I said, you know what, dad, I think I'm a great worker right now. <laughs> you know, I, I think I'm really a great worker. And my dad looked at me when I was 20 years old. He says, let me tell you something. It takes at least five years to be a good worker. And he says, you'll never be a good worker unless you work as a heel. You know, you, it's yeah. nice. To be you have to have the both psychologies. And in those days, people don't know that. But when you get in the ring, it was always the heel that called the match. From A to Z, when you'd go in the ring, from my starting career at the age of 17, I'd go in, and, and that's why a lot of people say, hey, I think he's talking to his opponent. You know, the, probably the guy that the baby face he was talking to, he's probably saying, I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you <laughs> because, because it was always the bad guy that was calling the match. And, and I remember my father telling me, he said, I'm going to give you some advice, Rob. He says, when you go up the ladder, he says, be nice to everybody because yeah. one day you're going to start coming down. And when you come down, you're going to meet the same people that you saw when you were going up. <laughs> and he says, if you were nice to them, they're going to break your fall. They're not going to let you fall. But if you were mean to them or cocky to them or no good to them, they're just going to wait for you to fall. And when you fall, they're going to step aside and they're going to wait for that big splash. You know what I mean? So so that was an advice that my father gave me. And, and, and so, so when I think of Ultimate Warrior like that, I think he never had that lesson. I don't think he was a second generation wrestler. I don't think so. And, and, and I just think that he didn't have that respect. So so that's why the people respected him in a certain way because he was Vince's little doll or Vince's little uh, puppet or, or project. But, yeah. but and so so if, if you want to stay on Vince's good side, you got to like the people he likes. That's what a lot of people thought like that. I didn't. But a lot of people thought like that. And 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 so uh, so I think it would have been a great lesson for him to have from my dad before going to the WWF. Like when you mm -hmm. come in, be humble, be nice, and everybody says, "Hey, you're getting a great push." And tell the guy, "Say hey, I don't deserve it, you know, but thank you very much, you know, I appreciate that." Instead of coming in like, "I don't King Kong." So 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 that's my opinion on the Ultimate Warrior. Sorry that I'm deceiving you, but uh, but that's it. Oh, that was cool. And uh, I suppose one of the big career highlights was becoming IC champion against uh, my favorite, Bret Hart. So I, Bret was having some contract issues, was that right? That's one of the reasons you got the title, or am I wrong? No, you're wrong. You're wrong, James. Uh, right. Bret was a, 
individual that was very, very uh, the greatest guy in the dressing room. Him and Owen, greatest yeah. guys. I love Brett. I started in the business seventeen years seventeen years old for his dad in Calgary, and okay. he was he was just driving the bus. He wasn't even wrestling yet. So he's a he's a great great person, Bret Hart. But he has this philosophy that was different than than some of the guys of marketing himself. And he didn't like to do jobs. That's why exactly the screw job in Montreal was Shawn Michaels, because he was going to another federation and he didn't want to drop the belt. <laughs> you know, yeah. And when we won the titles, like I said, in Montreal, two days later, they showed up on TV. They never acknowledged we were champions, you know. And when it went the time to the Intercontinental title, he had to face on the pay-per-view Piper. But then at the last minute, he didn't want to drop the belt to Piper. That's what I think. I don't have any proof. But I'm just going by the time I was with him to see how he acts and how he does business. So that's why they switched the title to me in Springfield, Massachusetts, two days before the match with Piper that I lost the belt. So I'm the shortest reign intercontinental title. That's me right here. But, but not only that is when he when I beat him in Springfield, he came into the ring first. And he took the microphone and the announcer took the microphone and says, Brett, you shouldn't wrestle tonight. The doctor says you have 104 fever. Right, yeah. was like, All right. So I went in and I beat a sick guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but so I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. He didn't like to to lose, Brett. And sometimes it was. Uh, but but you know what? Here's the funny thing of this all. At the time, I hated his philosophy. I hated him for it. And now I'm looking back, and he went so far in the business, and he got so much out of the business. Like, I'm asking myself, who was right and who was wrong? Like, maybe mm. he had the right way to market himself. Maybe he was smarter than all of us, you know, and, and he did the right thing. So, But unfortunately, you, when you do things like that, you always have collateral damage. And that's what we were, you know, collateral damage. So, so, but I love Brett, the, 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 this dying day you saw you, the video, Brett's, we have this yeah. great respect, but, but Jesus, it's hard to beat him, I'll tell you, it's really hard to beat Brett. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was your thoughts when they made him the champion? Because, uh, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but he must have been one of the first, not the first Canadian champion, but the first Canadian world champion for a while in WWE. Uh, it was, it, it's unimaginable, it's, it's not even, it's surreal, because, you know, he, he 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 had it. He looked good. He he was all oily, and all the girls were going nuts over him. And he was the greatest technician. I remember working with him in the ring, and it was so fun. You know, when I came in WWF, like you said, we worked two years together against them. They were they were bad guys. We were good guys. That's and then funny. we switched. We we switched bad guys, and they switched good guys. Yeah. And, and and then there was a time where even Jimmy Hart switched with us. You know, right after That's right. Yeah. He had half of the contract of the Hart Foundation, so we were making a lot of money. Like, we were making our money. That was only a storyline. But the storyline was the Rujos are making their money, but they're making half of the money that the Hart's making. So when, they, <laughs> when we did the switch, we worked another two years with them. So I worked, like, for four years around the world with these guys. You know, and, and, and what a great night off every night. Every night yeah. I go in there because Brett was one of the great, great wrestlers that knew how to protect his opponent. And if ever, and that's one thing that I showed in my wrestling school also. Well, for 20 years at a wrestling school, I said, listen to me, guys. When you pick up a guy, let's say for a body slam, you're going to throw him down and you lose balance a little bit. Well, you make sure that the guy that you have up here, he falls straight and you fall crooked and you hurt your arm and you hurt your elbow because he gave you your body. So it's your job to take care of it. And Brent was one of those guys that did that. 
Brett was one of those guys that never hurt me. He never hurt me once. And I worked four years, night after night, like 25 nights a month. You know, him yeah. and them and the Hawkers. You know, Shawn Michaels and Marty Janetti. We have great matches we had with them also. But it was always between those two that we worked for for so many years. So so Brett, and then I worked with him when, when I became the Inter... You know, we did that little deal with the... And then the Intercontinental title switch. But then after that, when Piper took the title, we did something where Brett went to the ring... And then, and then I came out after Brett was in the ring, and I'm asking him, why is this not a title match? And he was champion at the time. Why is this not a title match? And he, and he says, because you don't deserve one. And I was on the floor. <laughs> and then he kept, we kept having this scouting on me on the floor and him in the ring. So finally I said, hey, you come down here right to my face, and you tell me why don't I deserve a championship match? And then he goes, so people are getting bored, like they're getting pissed because I don't want to get in the ring. And I'm taking my time. And this finally comes out of the ring in front of my face and he takes the mic off of me and he looks at me and just says, and then he says, because I don't give title matches to jailbird, you know, because I don't <laughs> thing with boss man. And by that second, Jimmy Hart came from behind with a big pail of water and he just threw the water on Brit. Like splash on top. So Gorilla Monsoon and Mean Gene and Jesse the Bud, they're all like, well, wow, what's going on? What's why the water? And then I came with my shock stick and I zapped the hell out of him. Like he was on the floor and it was like for like 30 seconds. And the people were going mad, especially the girls. They were going mad because and we had a great angle. So we worked a little thing there. So I'll work for Brett. I worked with Brett over five years, and I was 10 years in WWF. I must have spent five years with Brett, you know, yeah. so it was, it, and it was a blessing because he was a great worker. He took care of his opponent. It was like, like I said before, it was a night off working with Brett. Yeah, awesome. And uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned that you became IC champion. You dropped it to Piper, but uh, Ronnie Piper, sadly, missed one of the all-time greats, and uh, he's had a fun match at the Royal Rumble. I really enjoyed it. It was an entertaining match, but... I would imagine behind the scenes, he was just such a character. <laughs> you know, behind the scenes, he was such a quiet guy. Really? Oh, he was such a quiet guy. He was like nice and considerate. And he'd sit down and, how are you doing? And he'd always say, and he'd listen to you. He was a great person. He wasn't at all the same person that he was in his character. So oh. when he came out to the ring, he was wild. I remember that match I had with yeah. him. Holy shit, I thought I was fighting an army. You know, and he, was, and he was alone. But 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 in the dressing room, he was such a, a nice, considerate man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but sadly, most uh, he's one of my favorites. So entertaining as well. So, uh, oh, was he, was he ever with his dress there, his skirt? Boy, I, I did some promos with him for the Royal Rumble. I think when I lost the belt anyway, two days later to him, and I did some promos. And I had fun laughing about his skirt, you know, and I was just saying, yeah, but it was fun. And, 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 and he was so intense in his interviews, too, you know, and, I, and you'd really wonder, like, you know, this guy's nuts, you know, he's really nuts. But he wasn't at all. He was a genius. This guy he was smart, he was polite, considerate and respectful. And so, so uh, yeah, great, great man. When, when he died, I was very saddened by it, actually. Mm. And uh, so you was in WWE for another year or so, and then you took a bit of a break. And I, I actually interviewed um, PCO, um, I think it was like a year ago, and he mentioned he was working in Puerto Rico. And I think that's where you met, was that right? Or am I wrong? 
Yeah, no, I was working main event. Uh, I was on a year off from my two characters and the three actually between my characters. And I was, uh, I just finished the Mountie because the Royal Canadian Mountie kicked me off the TV because I was giving That's them right. a bad reputation. So, so I had to take a year off and I was doing independent shows and I went to, to Carlos Colon in Puerto Rico where he had his own territory. And he, he called me in. I was coming out of the Mountie. I was very hot. So he asked me that uh, if I wanted to wrestle Abdullah in the main event. So I said, sure, I'll do it. You know, it's great. You get great payoff. And, and, and I told him at the condition that he picks me up at the airport in the morning and he brings me on a golf course. And then I said, if he does that, I'll play my golf in the afternoon and then I'll go work that night because I was really a mad golfer at the time. And uh, and that's a disease on its own, I'll tell you. But anyway, yeah. a lot of the guys divorce their wives because they're playing too much golf. But anyway, that, long, that place go. <laughs> so so anyway, long story short, I go in the I, I, I finish my golf game in the morning, and about two o'clock, I go on the beach, and I'm just walking on the beach, and this guy comes behind me, and so I turn around, and he says "Bonjour, Jacques," like in French, and I look at him and say, "Hey, you speak French?" He says. Yeah, yeah, I'm all talking in French. I'm saying in English, but I'm, I was talking French. I'm, eh, tu français? You know, and I said, yeah, yeah, I come from Montreal and this and that. Wow. And then we start talking. He says, can I, Jacques, he says, can I ask you one favor? He says, just one favor. He says, I, um, I'd like for you to watch my match tonight. He says, I'm on first. And he says, if you, would, if you just wouldn't mind watching my match. And I said, sure. And, and then after that, he, we start talking, we're talking. And then he told me that for like 10 years, he was sending tapes to the WWF. He was trying to get in. He couldn't get in. Almost like this competition I have now, the opportunity. Yeah. Being at the right place at the right time or knowing the right people. And so so he told me, he says, uh, I've been sending these tapes for nine years. But he says, nobody's answering back. Nobody's sending. I said, uh, so after anyway, I looked at his match. And when I saw his match, I just freaked out. I said, Jesus Christ, I don't know if when you were young that they had those green little men, they were called gum gumbies, you know, like the Yeah, yeah, yeah. They you could bend them and every which way you want, yeah. they come back straight, you know. And, yeah. and it was like so he was a gumby. He was flying over the top, landing on the cement floor, doing all kinds of crazy things that I'd never seen. So when he finished his match, he came back to me. I was still there, I promise, you know. And I was only on the last, so at time, I had, there was like four or five matches before my match. So I was sitting down, and he came to sit beside me. He says, he says, did you have a chance to see my match? I said, see it? I loved it. And I said, hey, listen, I'm going back home tomorrow. But I said, give me four or five days. And I said, I'll, I'll call you back. And he looked at me, he said, no. I said, yeah. I said, give me four or five days. And I just met the guy the same day, but I, I could recognize talent. So I said, I'll, I guess for me, I wanted just to get him in the WWF to have some talent. It's not because yeah. I want But then I thought, I said, hey, you know, this would be a great partner for me because I could have yeah. all the charisma and I could do a little bit of high flying, but he's going to take all the big, crazy bumps, you know, like the, the, the dangerous moves. And, and uh, so I told him, I said, listen, I'll call you about four or five days. So when I got home, I called Vince in the meantime. And I said, Vince, I think I found a guy that I'd like to come back to as a tag team. You know, but Raymond had gone. I'd been the Mountie. And now it was like another year break after the Mountie. I said, hey, I, I think I, I have the guy for me. And, and yeah. Vince had so much faith in me. He just turned around. He says, okay, Jacques. He says, well, let me know when you guys are ready. You know? And, and so I, I, I set up a ring behind my house. And for every, every, three, four times a week, he'd drive from, from the South Shore of Montreal, uh, like an hour and a half drive to my house. 
and he'd come practice with me. And we'd practice moves that people had never seen. We started putting our ideas together, like the slam on the other one, the tower when he's on the top rope and I hold his hands and, and he does that. All these moves. And we practice and practice because I, I put a dummy in the middle of the ring, not a person, a real dummy. I put yes. a dummy in the ring because it was a dangerous move when he was yeah. up. He was, he was 300 pounds and I had to Always hold him up. Guy, yeah. You know, so I, I, if he lands on, uh, if his, his, excuse my language, but if his ass lands on the thorax of the guy, he's going to kill him. He's 300 pounds. Yeah. So I have to time it that when he comes off, I have to hold him about a foot long. But he's heavy now, and a foot is long when you have a 300 pound at the end of your arms. So I had to move myself forward to bring him, and I was a judge. To where he has to fall, he has to have his shoulders hit the guy and his ass on the other side so make sure you don't kill him so we practice on a dummy we did all those crazy moves and, and, and then finally i picked up the phone i called vince i said vince whenever you're ready we're ready so we got into the first night in the manhattan center in new york and the first night we're sitting here in front of all the boys were wrestling the steiners and we beat them for the world tag team championship we oh. took the titles on the first night so carl Willett, from six months early, when he tapped on my shoulder, six months later, he could, for nine years, been trying to get in the WWF. And the first night he comes in, he's world tag team champion with Johnny Polo and the Canadian hockey shirt on. And then and he had the stick there where the Steiners stole. There was a no DQ match. Like it was a, it was like you weren't allowed to jump off the top rope. You weren't allowed all kinds of crazy rules. But you could lose by DQ the match. It was different. So we won the titles, and from then on, the Quebecers lived for at least a year or two with three times reigning champions. And and then so so uh, so Carl Willett, he, he 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 met me. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to him, I think, you know, in the business. Because after that, he he flew on his own, and he has a great career. He's still going now. Still That's going. Great. So so it just goes to show that uh, always being at the right place at the right time sometimes. Yes. And that's a great way to uh, end this conversation. I've got literally another page for other questions, but we'll stick a pin on that for now and perhaps do a part two. Um, but yeah, thanks very much for coming on, Mr. Rujo. Great pleasure. And everyone who's watching it, please, Wrestling Academy. Uh, you got the full name, Wrestling Academy. You got a dash. You got a dash. Wrestling right. dash Academy. So wrestling-academy.ca. You'll have the link anyway. You'll put the link yeah, up. Yeah, the link. Make sure you put that little line between the wrestling and academy there, the wrestling-academy.ca. And people, subscribe, because in the month of May, approximately, this whole tournament's going to start, and you will be able to text from your phone and, and vote for the ones you want to keep and the ones you want to leave. And if you just want to go see the talent that's on this roster – it's amazing. What do you see the eight girls that we have? They're all different, you know, from one, uh, one from each other. And, and all the talent we have from British Columbia to, to Halifax. It's an amazing, you know, I've doing podcasts now for a long time about this event. For eight months, I've been doing podcasts around the world. And everybody's saying to me, Jacques, we never seen something like that. You know, so a tournament like that, you know, 10 provinces together and, and have a chance to go to QT Marshall's wrestling school for three months now, just since two days ago, it, it got better. And, and so, so, so I'm proud, honestly, to have put that together and it started small and now it's just getting huge. 
and it's and I don't know where it's going to go. I, I think it's you know I remember uh, the first day I met Vince in New York before we signed with them. I'll never forget that day. The big limousine picked us up at the airport. What to Connecticut and the big big building WWF, the big letters from the Highway 95 that you could see, and you know it was it was huge. And we were intimidated, me and Raymond. And I remember that conversation. We had the conversation of coming in the territory, what they wanted, you know, this and that. And finally, I had the the nerves to ask him. I said, uh, Mr. McMahon, what are you going to do with us in your company? And he looked at me and he says, the sky is the limit. And I'll never forget that line. The sky is the limit. And, you know, and then I found out later on that he told that line to all the boys that made it. To the <laughs> so, 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 but it's great because now I'm saying this to my guys. I'm not saying the sky is the limit. I'm saying that Vince told me that 30 years ago. Yeah. And now telling you that <laughs> but the truth is it is work out get in shape go to the gym five times a week get in that ring roll and hit the ropes and do that because when the competition comes the world is going to be watching this competition and if even if you don't win this competition you're going to get exposure around the world and a lot of territories in canada didn't know each other they didn't even know the federations that were there they're going to start calling each other and booking each other so it's a great great thing for canadian wrestlers Sure is. Well, Mr. Rizzo, absolute pleasure. Uh, fingers crossed we'll do a part two one day, and I'm sure uh, yeah, we'll sure. talk more about it. But uh, absolute pleasure. And yeah, we'll definitely uh, keep in touch. Thank you so much. Take care, James. Thank you.